Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Good afternoon, Matt. Afternoon, Stu. Uh, back for our Thrive Bible study. <laughs> we're, man, we're going to be wading in deep today. This is uh, the book of Zechariah. Is, man, it's like a jungle of complexity, isn't it? It is. It but is. like jungles, Stu, it's full of amazing variety of beauty and richness. Totally. I, totally. That, I think that is an adequate metaphor for this amazing book in your fortnightly Bible study. Yeah, that's it. Well, I've just come back from a short break in New Zealand visiting friends, and it's like coming straight back into this. It's like, oh man, get your, yeah, yeah, get your right. stuff together. Yeah, There's a yeah. lot in this as we yeah. journey through Zechariah, out of holiday mode, back into, into work mode. It's, but, it's um, interesting. I, I find Zechariah is interesting because he's really the sort of last of the of the real apocalyptic prophets. Yep. The, you know, there are these bizarre dreams. It's like things from Ezekiel. I mean, there are elements of this uh, elsewhere, but mainly in the sort of the exile. You, you certainly sense something's changed yes. in in the way that prophecy is given. Now, the you've got a remnant of the people, so you're a smaller group of people, but the prophecies seem to be bigger. Yeah, that's they? right. Yeah. They're just they're, totally. they're these all-encompassing sort of apocalyptic visions of what's going to happen with the world. And Zechariah has... There are a number of moments here that are classic messianic mm. end times prophecy stuff. Fascinating. Yeah. And I think we've got to remember, too, that we can read this with the hindsight of knowing that, in fact, in our time, most of most of the prophecies here for yeah. Zechariah, the visions have been fulfilled. But for the people back then, they were trying to figure out what this meant and yeah. obviously put their own interpretations on it. And anyway, um, so Zechariah, we've, we've covered the book of Haggai. We did that uh, in the last episode. Mm-hmm. And Haggai and Zechariah were sort of contemporaries living around yeah. the same time. And Haggai had a similar kind of mission in a sense, which was to redirect people's yeah. uh, minds and hearts yeah. towards God. Uh, God's purposes Um, and again this was Zechariah's kind of call so we might remember in Haggai people had gone off and made their own you know built their own lives they'd paused the rebuilding of the of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, mm. they'd gone off and, and started to build their own lives and without much concern uh, yep. for the things of God. And, and Haggai was calling them back. And to some degree, the start of Zechariah, that's exactly what he's yep. he's trying to remind them of their mission uh, and their sense of purpose yeah, really right. through this. The book's divided into two main sections. The mm. first chapters, one to eight, uh, contain a series of visions that uh, Zechariah was given. And the second half of Zechariah, nine to 14, consists of oracles and prophecies. Interesting too, the name Zechariah, the Hebrew name Zechariah, actually means Yah remembers. Yeah. And when you actually put that in the context of what Zechariah is actually trying to do here, mm. this sense of God hasn't forgotten us, you know. Yeah. Uh, and of course, not only had he not forgotten the people, he had also not forgotten uh, how the nations had treated yeah, them right. as well. Yeah, that's right. So it's interesting in Ezra chapter 5, and this is really the context that we are dropping into here. If you're following in the Thrive Bible reading guide, you'll notice as we get to Ezra chapter 5 and then we flip over to Haggai and then to Zechariah. That's an interesting context. And as you say, there's a historical context, and that does help actually a lot with interpreting these books, particularly the book of Zechariah. It helps to know the historical context. But it's also worth recognizing, Stu, that this book in so many ways transcends even that immediate historical context. There's this aspect of prophecy that we've talked about before, where the prophet is responding to events then and saying things about the events at the time. And he's making promises that to some extent apply to the time, but 
ultimately point forward, point forward mm-hmm. to p- potentially multiple fulfillments yeah. with very much an end fulfillment in mind. So, so he addresses, you know, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and I mean, Joshua's the high priest. He he's a stands as a quite a big figure in yes. uh, Zechariah's prophecies. But we've also got to remember what he stands for. It's never just about the individual when yeah. when yeah. the priesthood is addressed. It's about that office, and mm. uh, and and in a sense, both the office of priest and king. Th- these are offices that Jesus, you know, fulfilled, and that are ultimately really fulfilled mm-hmm. in the Messiah. Yeah. Um, so Zechariah yeah, was actually that's... a prophet and a priest. Zerubbabel was more like the governor in a <clears throat> sense, right. who was in charge of the of the that's region. Right. But yeah. a Davidic descendant uh, of David, exactly. That's right. So, and so there could have been the assumption he's going to be yeah. the next king. Uh, yeah. but of course, Zechariah tells otherwise. That's so, right. And yeah. this comes back to this aspect of the the story of, and we better get into the book mm. uh, now mm. because it's, we've got a fair bit to get through. Yeah. But you know, the story of of Ezra and Nehemiah, this history that's recorded in those books, is this series of challenges, then then climactic moments of triumph, but then anticlimax at the end, right? Yes. Because it's not the ultimate fulfillment. There's always this anticlimax that causes them to point forward. Now, the importance of Zechariah is that he is addressing the the anticlimax as well. He's he is pointing forward. I mean, and he's gonna, you know, paint some grand visions. So he opens up by calling the people to return. There'd been a uh, like a big period of time, decades, yeah. uh, in which the temple had laid in ruins. And and so... So this is the people who've returned from Babylon, the exile yeah. of Babylon. They've come back. They've started to build the temple. Then they've gone into kind of... Well, they had opposition and... And, you know, and they drifted the off hardship, to do their own yeah. things. That, oh, look, it's just easier. Let's build our own That's houses, right. get our crops all happening. And yeah. and Haggai and, Ze- and Zechariah really are saying, hey, guys, this needs yeah, to be that's the right. priority. So the, it's a work site. The yep. temple is a work yep. site, and that's a pretty sorry. Particularly, if if you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen a work site that stands as a work site for decades. It looks really yes. sad, <laughs> like something's gone wrong here, yep. and something had gone wrong. And yep. so, both Haggai and Zechariah are calling them to return. This is how, in fact, in Zechariah chapter one, verse three, return to me. Right? Uh, I mean, they'd returned to Jerusalem, but now they needed to return to God. Yeah. You know, uh, and. And there's this warning in 1 verse 4, you know, don't be like your ancestors, right? Because he's acknowledging that the same drift is happening, right? You came back with all of these high hopes and, okay, things got hard, but this is what happened to your ancestors, yeah. right? In times of hardship, they turned to their own devices and to sort of supernatural, what they saw as suitable supernatural solutions to yeah. pressing problems and and they got lost. You know, they there was this drift. And, so and he reminds her of how angry that. God got with them about that. That's right. Right. You know, yeah. the ancestors. <clears throat> yeah. And so then in, in 1 verse uh, 7, we have this vision of the four horses. And uh, the, the the four horsemen should be known to all those keen readers of the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Now, Zechariah is not copying off the book of Revelation, of course, it's the other way around. That's right. Uh, you know, the book of Revelation picks up on prophetic symbols, yeah. a lot of prophetic symbols that are used in the Old Testament prophets. And this is an example of a yeah. repeated use. And I so, think that the use of number four really was to to, to um, indicate the four kind of cardinal points of the yeah, horizon. That's right. It's like yeah. from every corner of the earth kind yeah, of thing. So that's it right. was really saying everywhere, from everywhere. That's yeah. right. And And horses can be messengers, you know, they can be scouts. Uh, but the point is, these messengers or scouts—they're going out to the, you know, to the globe, and they're going to report back mm-hmm. uh, to this angel. This angel that stands among the myrtle trees sends them out, 
And, you know, they come back with this report that the world seems to be... Content. Content, stable, mm. at peace. Yeah. And this, this is basically a picture of Persian dominance. And when it says at peace, it's a... Suppressed. Everyone made, else was yeah, suppressed. Everyone suppressed. <laughs> this is like Big Brother, yeah. you know, suppression. Yeah. yeah. Like, so that wasn't a good thing. Is essentially is what is what it, it, you may feel. Oh, that's good. But actually, it's like after what had happened to the nation of Judah and Israel. Yeah. In, in reality, God's pretty angry at all of these nations right. all around who are now, you know, quite happy with what they've done. Uh, but yeah. we're, we're not. That's right. Know. So so yeah, they're, sure. There you know, mm. uh, there's one big empire now, and it seems like it seems like peace. And this is where it goes in in from verse 15. You know, God responds. Uh, you know, God expresses his anger over this sense of security yeah. and stability. But he's zealous for his people, and he wants them to. He wants them to be stable, but have the right kind of stability, of yeah. course. Yeah. The sense here is that the nations are going to fall. This stability is going to crash. And of course, as we know, it, it does. I mean, Persia falls monumentally yes. to Alexander, Alexander the Great. Right. Now, this is, you know, this is sometime later, uh, but still, it's not something to trust. And we've got to remember that the prophets are thinking multi generationally. Yeah. In fact, I think people at this time did. They did think more multi-generationally right. than we probably think a little bit more individualistically in the here and now. Uh, yeah. So there's this sense in this prophecy. You know, this stability is going to crash, yeah. uh, but Jerusalem is going to remain firm in this. And this is a this is a promise to these people, like invest in God's purpose because it's the only stable thing yeah. uh, going on right now. So the fall of the nations is expressed in this vision of the four horns being hammered by the smiths or the, yeah. the workmen. Yes. You know, they're, they're going to ham because a, a horn stood for strength. So this the strength of the nations is going to be, you know, destroyed. Demolished. So, demolished. There's a call in, in chapter two to flee from Babylon, you know, to the exiles, to come to Jerusalem. It's and not that necessarily they would have heard this. It, this is a sort of prophetic call mm. uh, because it's going to be the only secure place on yes. the earth, right? Yeah. Everything, yeah. like, don't feel, and, and perhaps there's a sense that, and, and maybe they're conscious of the fact that people aren't coming back because they feel secure. It's okay here. Yeah, right. exactly. But the fact is, and Zechariah is making the point here, the only secure place, essentially, mm. is in the purpose of God, right? Mm. So come back, even if that seems like a big step of faith, a big risk, it's actually riskier being, being outside, outside of God's God. purpose. And yeah. in fact, as he says, it's a sure thing that all of that, all of that stuff that you're trusting in is going to mm. crumble. And I think it's important to remember that as we read this, we're not just reading it as a historical thing. We need to read these in the context of our own lives today, as you, as you just said, Matt. And we, yeah. we do tend to, in this modern day and age, particularly in Western culture, tend to put our self-worth, security and significance in the things of the world. Yeah, that's right. And, and really what Zachariah is saying here, it's all going to come to nothing. Yeah. The only place you can yeah, be that's safe right. and secure is in God's purpose. That's right. And yeah. in fact, he says... That ultimately, and this is where you get this, his gaze is being cast forward because he says there in verse 11, many nations, this is 2 verse 11, mm. many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and they will become my people. Yeah. Now, this is clearly pointing beyond that present time, right? They weren't even willing to let the Samaritans join in and That's build right. the temple. Yeah. But he's saying that ultimately, even these nations that you're amongst, 
and that you're staying, perhaps, you know, there's a there's a temptation to stay in those nations. No, even those nations one day are all are going to stream and there's a big... To be a part of this new Jerusalem. That's right. This is a big part of the, the prophecies in, in Zechariah, this sense that all of the nations are going to stream yeah. into the new Jerusalem, uh, which is a, you know, I think it's we could take that as quite justifiably as a picture of the, the new church. covenant period in the church and um, and the gathering in of the nations. I think that's, totally. that's uh, more than justifiable. Chapter three is when he starts talking about the high priest. Yes. Uh, and very, a very important uh, figure here. He talks about the measuring line first to sort of say how, how the size of the city represented the prosperity yep. and expansion of this new Jerusalem. Yeah. And, and then he goes on to talk about the high priest. He talks about the fact that God is a wall of fire around his people and he has placed his glory within each one of us by his spirit. So this whole sense of uh, the wall of Jerusalem is going to be God's spirit in the yeah. new Jerusalem uh, yeah. as the church grows. Yeah. There's a, very interesting scene here, Stu, in chapter three. Mm. Joshua, the high priest, representing God's people, of course, we've got to remember that. The high yep. priest wore the, 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 the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So he is the representative of the people as a whole. And he's being accused by mm. Satan. Interesting, isn't it? He's being accused by Satan. But in response to these accusations of Satan, uh, and of course, this is the accusations of all the sins of the past, right? All yes. of the sins. This is why you should be wiped out. This is uh, this is Satan's claim as to why they shouldn't survive and they should be wiped out. But what happens? They are given a clean robe to wear. Yeah. For the high priest, the robe, of course, is a symbolic. Uh, very symbolic. It's mm. symbolic of the the covering over of sin. We see. In the book of Revelation, mm. of course, the robes return yes. the book of Revelation, don't they? Yep. Because all of God's people are dressed in white robes, pure and clean. Mm. That's that's the picture mm. that we have in Revelation. So here in Zechariah, the high priest is given that robe to wear, to, to sort of cover over his sins uh, in that sense. Yeah. Uh, and he's reinstated. Okay, so so the so Satan is accusing, but in response to the accusation, he's given this clean robe. As a result, he's reinstated. Uh, the priesthood that th is therefore reinstated, and this really stands for the reinstatement of God's people. It's not just about the high priest. This is God. It's God saying, "Yes, you've sinned, but now I'm reinstating you." Mm. Right. This and and this is important too because it's not just what God did then. This is what God does. Right. Yes. When we it, there's always this opportunity when we feel condemned and failed, and I'm no good, and and. Satan comes in and says, "Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're you're nothing. You can't go back it's too to God. Late now. It's you're, you're no hope." But the gift that God gives us in Christ is the gift of a new robe and the gift of reinstatement, and that's portrayed here in yeah. in these colourful terms. So totally. here, in the midst of a complex jungle, uh, we've got something really, really beautiful. You know, a beautiful flower of of vision here. These, by the way, we probably worth saying to you, they're sort of dream visions, aren't yes. they? Yes. There's and they a, all happen in one night, so it's like it, it would they all happen in one night. Extensive. And there's a, there's a sort of chiastic structure. I mean, d with, without being too complicated, well, this is this is a standard, mm. you know, feature of Hebrew literature, where where you get this chiasm from the like an X. Think of an X, and and where it, because at both ends of this book ending, you've got the horses, and and so you get this group of visions. But that's anyway. I won't go too much into that. 
But I the climax that, is normally in a chiastic. Yeah, that's of, right. It's always it's, it's in, the, in middle. the middle. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So rather than thing. to the end where we tend to write stories and then the climax is at yeah, the yeah, end, chiastic that's right. means it's in the middle. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, so Josh was stand. He can now stand before God yeah, that's because right. he's been cleansed. His robes are uh, clean and and he, yeah, you know, reinstate. But then in three verse eight, like in the context of that, uh, God says, "Listen, High Priest jo- uh, Joshua, uh, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come." Just in case we think it's just about now. I mean, yeah. it's really expressed. Yeah. This is, and in some ways, this becomes kind of a key to interpreting all of prophecy. There is this multiple. It's not just about then. It's also symbolic of things to come. And he says, I'm going to bring my servant the branch, he says. And then he says, see the stone I've set in front of Joshua. He describes this stone. And then he says, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. This yeah. is at the end of this vision. Uh, the stone is a common messianic symbol. The stone that the builders rejected has become the, the capstone, the, right? Yep. The branch is also a messianic symbol. Uh, branch the, of David. The, that's right, the branch of David. So th- it's like the, the family David tree, right? There's yep. still a branch. Because the question is, has the tree been cut off? Like, yes. You know, it's imagine a tree cut off from the stump. stump. Well, he's saying, no, there's going to be a branch. Yeah. Um, and they would have been wondering about that because, again, they knew about the – they obviously re- remembered the Davidic promise. Yeah. And at this point in time, they're thinking zero, zero bubble that's right. is the only one who could possibly take that position. Yeah. Uh, but here, Zechariah's prophesying there's going to be something even greater. Yeah, that's right. Even broader. And it's somehow associated with, with the high priesthood, priesthood. because, uh, and, and it's not Joshua, but Joshua is symbolic of a priest yet to, to come. come, right? And and this person is the branch, he is the stone, and he is the one who is going to remove the sin of this land in a single day. I yeah, mean, yeah. it is remarkable. It's right? a, a, a very, yeah, very strong point forward to, to Jesus, obviously. Yeah. In chapter four, uh, we have this uh, picture of the gold lampstand uh, and the two trees. So you've got two olive trees beside a sort of seven lamp lampstand. And the, the idea here, um, and, and this, by the way, is the this is the content. It's a very famous verse in this chapter in Zechariah chapter four. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Says the Lord. Lord. Anyone that ever went to a charismatic or Pentecostal church has heard that verse a million times, right? And and it's great. It's a great verse. But this the interesting thing here here is the context for it. And it's not I'm not saying it's been used out out of context. But the context just gives it so much more depth. Mm. Uh, As I was saying, you have these two olive trees beside a seven lamp lampstand. And the olive trees, remember olive oil. Uh, the, the olive trees supply a continual flow of olive oil for these lamps. This is verse 12, right? Mm. And it's interesting what we find out in, in verse 14, that the olive trees are Joshua and Zerubbabel, right? The two who are anointed to serve the Lord. These, these, the, these guys are the olive trees in a sense. So in, the, in that context, not by my, not by my, not, but by my spirit, right? It's my spirit work. It's the anointing upon these leaders that, na- that is going to enable everything that God is going to do uh, in the future. So the lamp, the you know the, the the lamp or the light is a you know symbol of this. Well, this nation that is called to be a light to the world, right? Mm. Yeah, totally. uh, we're called. You know, Jesus says, "You are the light of the world." This comes from uh, Old Testament prophecies about Israel being the light to the nations, right? Yes. So here. Zechariah sees this light. What is it that fuels the lamps? It's these two olive trees. And they stand for Zerubbabel on the one hand, Joshua on the high priest. But remember, this is symbolic of things to come. He's just said that. The king and the priest. That's right. It's the king and the priest. And it's those two 
titles that are combined in Christ. He is the source of mm. the sort of outflow of the spirit of power yeah. into our lives that who empowers the church which is the fulfillment of these very prophecies. Which is the New Jerusalem. Oh, it's just rich stuff. Love it. Now, the next two visions uh, concern... The flying uh, scroll? Yeah. uh, It's pretty much concerning the the lawlessness uh, in the land. And the the flying scroll is this curse over the land. There's this woman in the basket, strange... Yes. Dreams, but dreams are strange. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like I don't know if it was a a really sort of hot, uh, you know, Middle Eastern night that night or something. But he's you know having some bizarre dreams here. But these are spirit inspired dreams, of yes. course. So this woman who is caught, who is wickedness is in this basket, right? Uh, and she's taken away by two angels to Babylon. Uh, that's Shinar in mm. some uh, texts. Mm. Removed as far as the east is from the west. What does that remind you of? Some 103. As as, exactly. Yeah, that's, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your, sin. your sins from you. Mm. So in this basket, right, hidden, like there in this basket, there is this woman who represents uh, the, the the wickedness, the sin uh, of the people. Which, and, which essentially is the autonomy. It's like we're going to be rulers of our own lives in, yeah. in some way. Yeah, because that's if right. you, Shinar was also where the Tower of Babel was built, that yeah. sense of we're going to be yeah, that's like right. God. So, yeah. the, so so don't just think about sin as, as you know, moral failings. Yeah, yeah, it's also yeah. this whole sense of I can build my own life without God. Yeah, that's God. right. That's right. And so this basket is taken mm. right over, you know, to, to the east. And, and, and so it's, in a sense, it's not the people being exiled now. It's the sin of the people that's yeah. being exiled to the east, you know, and one removed as far as the east is from the west. Yeah. So that even gives that verse in Psalm and 3, I think, a richer yeah, sort of yeah, meaning. Totally. You know, I'm, I'm exiling your sin from you uh, to the east, like mm. just like the, mm. you know, the Babylonian exile. Amazing. Uh, and then we have the four, this... Uh, chariots. The, 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 you know, the four chariots. The, the this chiastic point, by the way, is this bit very much around Joshua and this role of the anointed, and the, you know the, yep. that, that's the that sits right there. Yeah, yep. that's really the central uh, climax. But we come back uh, then at the end of this chiastic structure, we come to these four chariots uh, again. This time, well, actually, it's four horsemen, but this time they've got chariots. chariots. Right. Yeah. So we have repeat, but there's a bit of. Uh, development here. And the vision basically depicts in broad terms God's punishment of Babylon and his release of the Jews uh, in the early Persian period. Once the horses have got chariots, they're not just messengers anymore. They're, they're out for, they're fighting a battle, yes. you know, kind of spiritual battle here. So this, the final vision kind of functions as both climax and closure for the string of these night visions. And it's clearly intended, this last vision of these chariots is intended to remind the audience of the initial vision, of course. Yep. Because uh, it's using these coloured horses, and but now they're pulling chariots, and and now they're punishing they're, the nations. That's right, and they're be, they're actually beginning rather than completing a mission, because yes. in the first vision they're completing a mission, they're bringing news back that everything's uh, but fine. But here they're mm. they're about to go out, right? Mm. And these reconnaissance teams then have become military forces ready for battle, right? They bring judgment on the land of the north, venting God's wrath on the nation that exiled His yeah. people. Yeah. So again, there is this sense here. Uh, yes, you are a small nation sandwiched in between these, enemies all the, these you. you know, enemies all around. But my four horsemen, you know, g- girdled, all ready to go. They're strapped into the war chariots, and, and I am going to take care of the nation. Yeah, I'm going to take care of the nations, right? So God's saying, you can leave that for me. Uh, after which, we get this crown that's given for for uh, Joshua. Uh, so we go, we move from visions, yes, to sign yeah. act. Let's call yes. it a sign act. 
So basically, in summary, in this sign act, and this is sign acts, uh, I mean, we saw, didn't we, Ezekiel performs a lot of sign acts, yeah. lies on his side, yes. digs a hole in a yes. wall. People are gathering around, what is this guy doing? Like, yeah, yeah it's a very graphic way yeah. of you know illustrating your point. So this is a sign act. Now, I mean, it's basically Zechariah, in summary, is to oversee the manufacture of a crown, which is to be placed on the head of the high priest Joshua, who then receives a special special message from God. The message concerns a figure who is going to fulfill Jeremiah's promise of a Davidic descendant, the branch, and he's going to rebuild the temple, like really rebuild the temple. Yeah. And so here's Joshua, a priest, getting a kingly crown. Yeah, that's in a right. Sense. So this is the combination, the bringing together yes. of those roles of yeah, the that's king right. yeah. and the priest again. Yeah. That's right. And the harmony between the two of them. Yeah. So the priest is going to have a major role to play when this individual arrives in a sense and they kind of work together but in a in a long sense there's sort of there's a combined role here let's not pull it out of the immediate context there is a because Zerubbabel is still is yes. coming right this yes. is preparing the way for Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel as well and Zerubbabel is being honored as a descendant of David right there's still yeah. you know because of course and even at the beginning of Matthew you get the tracing of Jesus Davidic uh, you know, um, line. line, right? Yeah. So that's this is still taken seriously here. So this is important for the priest at that time and for Zerubbabel at that time, right? Yes. Uh, they're but it has so they're much part more. of this, but it goes beyond so that. So much uh, more yeah. for us going forward, yeah, of course. Totally. Um, in chapter seven, the people come and they ask yeah. uh, whether they should continue the feast that commemorates the destruction of the temple, which is, you know, should we fast on the fifth month? That basically they're asking the fast on the fifth month because it was on that month that the temple was destroyed. So for 70 odd years, over 70 years now, they've been, you know, fasting. Uh, and and, and so they come asking, with this question. Should we keep doing that? Yeah. Should we, should we keep doing that? And, you know, Zechariah and classic prophetic, th these guys are always wanting to peel back a layer, yeah. aren't they? And he says, look, okay, when you held these, you know, these days of fasting every, you know, fifth and, and seventh month, all these 70 years, were you really doing it for me? I mean, was it, yeah. you know- uh, For God. That's yeah. right. W were you really doing it for God? That's right. When you held these feasts, you know, was it really for God? Like- or was it Hardly, really, yeah. yeah? Or was it really because you wanted his blessing, and that was what you? Yeah, were that's right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. he's, you know, he's, and it's not that that they shouldn't have done that, and it's not that there because there was value in that. You know, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its. That's mm. Psalm 137 speaks to that. Yeah. You know that commitment. Yeah. So it was, it was a good thing. Yeah. But there was also plenty of uh, sort of selfishness, or or, yeah. and also perhaps. You know, I made a bit of a note for myself. It felt like maybe it was a bit, yeah, and yeah. and also maybe it was a bit more regret than it was repentance. It yeah. wasn't. Yeah. It was more like, oh, gee, we're sorry, but and then carry on and do it again. Whereas repentance is, no, no, we're going to turn around, and yeah, and I think that you know maybe that's part of it as well. So they were really fasting because of their own misfortunes, which was, you know, a typical kind of practice in. Yeah. The nearest, you know, it's like the gods decided yeah. your fortune, so we better keep these rituals. And it was more about that, perhaps, yeah. than it was just about seeking God. And, and there's an indication of that here because he then goes back and he reiterates the messages of the words of earlier prophets in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 7. Uh, which focus on justice. It's the, these prophecies about justice, not religion. I want yes. justice, right? Yes. Not religion. So. You know, he's he's reiterating this message to them and referring to the fact that earlier generations refused to listen, which is what led to the desolation in the first place. Yes, um, that that's important. That that 
end section there of, of, of chapter seven yeah. is actually about former generations, but this is a warning to them. Don't be, really don't become right. like this. Yeah. yeah, it's don't it's so it's not to be just about regret that you lost something. You're not just fasting about that. How about some fasting? Rep, you know, how about a bit of repentance here? Mm. Uh, that's the thing that's going to lead you forwards yeah. and changing your ways, of course. And, yeah, and which is what repentance is: turning around. Yeah, that's and going right. the other direction. Yeah. So in verse eight, Chapter we eight? get these yeah wonderful promises. Mm. Uh, God is promising to bless Jerusalem. He's promising to dwell there. This is important, encouraging for them. God encouragement for them. God hasn't given up on his promises. Jerusalem is still a key part of that of that promise yeah. for now. Yep. But and this is the key thing, God on the one hand makes a promise, but the promise is is, is still in some sense conditional on them prioritizing the blessing of his dwelling place. Right. You know, the idea is that God promises to do things according to his purpose, but we have to walk in the purpose, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, the, the promises j- just don't apply anyway. The promises of God apply for the purpose of God. And so yeah. th- they've got to prioritize the building of his dwelling place mm. uh, for this to, to mm. you know, to come about. And there's a real missional statement in here, you know, this whole sense of in those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his yeah. robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. This whole sense of yeah. God building his kingdom. Yeah, that's Right. All the nations, yeah, you know, not yeah, just and absolutely. And in in addition to that, they've you know they've got to administer justice, yes. and if they're going to be this people that are going to attract that, what you say, mm. all right, let you yeah. know, let, be a light then. Yeah, like this you've got to be a light. Is there you got to be a light? Mm. So, and then the, yeah, that's the promise in verse twenty-two that many peoples and nations will come to Jerusalem to seek God. I mean, that's because of your witness, because of the right, way yeah. you live your life, not that's because right. of the fast you keep, yeah. but because of the way you shine your light in a dark world. Yeah, you know? and this again, this is this repeated prophetic promise about God's people being that light on the hill. You know, you are the light of the world. Uh, Isaiah talking about, you know, that I make you a light for the Gentiles, a light yeah. for the nations, right? Yeah. This is, you know, he's reiterating that promise by talking about, you know, many nations coming. And um, as he says, it's down in ver- uh, verse 22, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty mm-hmm. uh, and to entreat him. There's a there's certainly a literal fulfillment of this promise because even, you know, by the first century we see, and we see this even in the book of Acts, don't yep. we? All the different people, the Jews from the diaspora coming to the temple. But there's something bigger than that. This isn't just Jewish people from yeah. the diaspora. This is actually prophesying uh, the you know, the church period the when global church. You know, that yeah. all peoples from all nations will come and be mm. and be a part of that. Mm. So then we move into chapter, chapter nine, nine where now, we shift out of the vision and we move into sort of yeah, that's oracles right. and prophecies. And yep. And this is a bit more familiar as something, this is the kind of stuff that's perhaps more familiar from you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah yes, and yeah. so forth. You know, the promise here is that Israel's enemies are going to be judged after which God will establish a prince of peace. And this is this famous prophecy about this coming uh, of the king. Um, see your king comes to you, mm. righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, yeah. on a <laughs> colt, the foal of a donkey. Yeah. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, mm. and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. To mm. the ends of the earth. Right? Mm. Uh, so remember we talked about that how the in the first vision, the horses go out and they they, they report back on these this false peace yeah. that covers the world. This peace through oppression, through worldly empire. That's the world system, right? 
what we see here in chapter 9 is this promise that, no, God's going to destroy that and the Prince of Peace is going to come mm. and establish a rule of peace. Well, of course, this begins to happen yeah. in you know, thirty around 30 AD mm. uh, when Jesus comes riding on the foal donkey. of a donkey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, f- foal of a donkey. It's uh, hard to imagine. I mean, this was written 6 BC, so mm. 500 and something BC. Yeah. It's hard to understand how Jewish people who aren't messianic can't read these things yeah. and and see that Jesus was oh, that's the, right. the prophesied Messiah. Yeah. It's like there's so many of these things that are like so, so specific. Many. Yeah. Uh, it's just difficult, isn't yeah. it, to, to understand that's that. That's right. And and of course the the gospel writers certainly see this as the yes. as the fulfillment and, and this is a at a time when they most wanted war. They most wanted a Military Messiah, yeah. right? Yes. Coming in on the war horse. Yeah. What do they get? Mm-hmm. They get the Prince of Peace who comes in riding yeah. uh, on a donkey. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that that Prince of Peace uh, extended the influence of God's people further than they ever could have dreamed, right? Yeah. Through it, you know, it's filled the earth, right? Yeah. Uh, amazing. Yeah, you know, totally. the church movement spread over the whole earth. So this is. Even now, in the process of being, uh, you know, of being fulfilled, this this peace riding on a donkey has been inspired many leaders from, I mean, you know, from even non-Christian leaders like Gandhi in this non-violent, peaceful approach to establishing, you know, justice and changing yes. the world. And Martin Luther King, I've just read a biography of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, and you know, this sort of language. No, it's we we. This is a rule of peace, right? Yes. We're going to do this peaceful protest. Yeah. You know, um, we're going to win the hearts of people. That's right. This is how. We we do things not with, you know, weaponry, not with weaponry and 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 sort of violence. Well, that's right. Mm. Uh, we we follow the principles. Peace, peace, love, mercy, and kindness. So, uh, chapter ten, uh, this uh, we have a promise that God is going to care for His people. He's going to gather and bless both. Well, He says here it's interesting, Judah and the Ephraimites, so north and yes. south. Yeah, these prophecies are interesting because by this stage, the northern kingdom are. Completely scattered and integrated into the world. Yeah. Uh, and a little bit more controversially, what's left of them is the Samaritans. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Who wanted to yeah. help build the temple and were told, no, and, we and, don't want And at this point, there's a lot of tension with yes. the Samaritans. But yeah. uh, he's, he is going to actually gather them too and yeah. bless them. And, and of course, we see in the book of Acts, one of the, the first stages in moving outside the Jewish people is to the Samaritans. Yeah. Well, even uh, the Jesus Spirit is poured out on, the on Samaritans. his first road trip. Really, he goes the to the Samaritans. He spends right. four days. Yeah. In a Samaritan village. That's right. You know. Yeah. Amazing. So, yep, we see this is coming together. Chapter 11, Stu, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to give a simple sort of summary of the message of this chapter, but I just want to validate that anyone who's read this chapter and thought, what on earth is yeah, going on here, and bit... felt completely confused, rest assured that even uh, that there's a renowned Old Testament scholar, S.R. Driver, who says that this prophecy is the most enigmatic prophecy in the whole of the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, Zechariah chapter 11. Yeah. All sorts of uh, complexities. And I'm going to let you unpack it. Well, basically what we have here is Zechariah is reliving God's dealings, Yahweh's dealings with his people in allegory, right? Uh, This is the shepherd. And he is reporting in a fresh way what Israel's history was really all about. Yeah. Right. They're yeah. this, uh, you know, shepherd my sheep because, of course, God is the ultimate shepherd of the sheep. But He's He has installed shepherds as well, and these shepherds have sold off the sheep. They've these done are the deals kings, with potentially yeah, of the kings Judah of the past. Yeah. 
uh, you know, we're not we're not exactly sure. sure. This is at one point here that I, that I'm going to bring down three kings in one month. And I mean, there were moments like that in in past history where uh, where, where there were a number of kings in a small space of time, and exactly. a month could, could be literal or it could be figurative for a yeah. very short uh, amount of time. But the point here is that this is a this is a a retelling of Israel's history through this imagery of the shepherd and shepherds that sell off the sheep and you know use them for their own profit. And this is this own, is the sort yeah, of exactly thing right. yeah. uh, that that had happened uh, in in the past. So you know, as a result, God uh, he breaks his favor. You know, this people that he wants to show favor to, and this is the image of the staff that he breaks the staff called yes. favor, yeah. Yeah. and 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 the staff called union as well. So this is why he says back in verse seven, you know, I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter, right? Because that they, they they are they've been shepherded badly, they've gone astray, and they are facing this. You know, they're facing this slaughter. It's also worth bearing in mind that Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So he is ultimately the one who was marked for slaughter and, and in a sense, fulfills uh, that element uh, of this prophecy. Uh, back down in, uh, we have this mention in verse 12 of the 30 pieces of silver. Now, if yeah. you're familiar with the, yeah. the Gospels, we know that Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Mm. Uh, it's not an insignificant uh, amount. But in the context, it kind of is, because this was basically 30 pieces of silver was the compensation that was paid a slave owner if his slave, slave was or uh, gored, yeah, yeah. You know, gored to death. So, And the, the significance of the wage is its connection to the value of a slave, right? Mm-hmm. In, in, a, in this sort of uh, monstrous irony and... And this upturning of priorities, the shepherding of God, a service of, of immense value. You know, yeah. God's shepherding is appraised here at only the comparative pittance of the lifetime service of a mere human yeah. slave. Right? 30, 30 pieces of slave. Um, yep. There's this messianic element to this because it's surely, I mean, Matthew sees here the Old Testament being fulfilled in the selling of Jesus mm-hmm. by Judas mm-hmm. for this same amount of money, right? Uh, because just as Yahweh was priced at only 30 silver pieces, uh, as far as his service to Israel was concerned, so Jesus was viewed by Judas and his generation as having no more value than a slave. Yeah. That's, there's this, Matthew sees this uh, connection uh, here. And in verse 13, the Lord says, you know, throw it to the potter. The Lord said to me, this magnificent price, I was valued by them. You that's know, right. It's kind of like, that's the value they put on yeah, that's me right. as the good shepherd. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. That's enough detail. I yeah, think. yeah. Wait, it's a <laughs> certainly uh, on uh, on chapter eleven. Um, it is, you know, it's complex, but there is there's quite a rich sort of multi layered uh, jungle of significance there. Albeit a bit of a jungle, I get it, and we can get you know a little lost there. But yeah, it's it's quite significant. In in chapters twelve and thirteen, and and we're, we're drawing to a close here. Uh, we have this this vision of the cu- this this sort of picture, not a vision, but a picture mm. of the cup. You know, he's going to make Jerusalem a cup, and it's going to send the surrounding nations reeling. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I'm going to make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all of these nations. Mm. 
We have all of these elements here. Um, you know, uh, Jerusalem is a cup. The nations of the earth are going to be gathered against Jerusalem, verse 3. Then also Jerusalem is going to be an immovable rock. Down in verse 6, uh, Judah is going to be like a fire pot that consumes those who surround her while she remains intact. You know, verse 8, the second part of verse 8, the house of David is going to be like God. I mean, you know, this secure, you know, this level of security. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, which leads up to this, this messianic prophecy. In uh, 12 uh, verse 10, which is this mourning for the one whom they have pierced. They will look on me, it says, uh, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And then it goes on to say in, in 13 verse 1, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And and then again in verse in chapter thirteen, we, it has this verse in verses seven to nine about the Lord's shepherd being struck and the yes. sheep being scattered. Yeah, all of these messianic exactly. prophecies in you know in the context of you know this focus on these long term prophecies about Jerusalem, what God's going to establish in Jerusalem. Of course, this is in Jerusalem. This is what God did through the Messiah. Is that the piercing of this uh, of this one, yeah. but through whose piercing? We are um, made. Yeah, we, right. we, we're made whole and right. And this kind of links to Isaiah chapter 53. I think there's also an um, element the suffering where, servant. where it's important for us to recognize, you know, as as the mourning and the weeping is we need to recognize our need for salvation. You know, in a sense, it's, it's pointed to the fact that we need to be willing to mourn, you know, before yeah. we can actually experience the joy of salvation. Because if we don't recognize yeah, how broken right. we are, how fallen we Absolutely. are, how much we've sinned and grieved God, then salvation matters little. Yeah. Uh, it's Absolutely. only when we recognize that and then step into mm. God's uh, provision for us. And that's the piercing here, probably in an initial context, could have been a sort of metaphorical piercing of the heart of God. You know, like God is mourning over his people and yeah. he wants them to mourn over over the fact that they've grieved God, you know, and, and that will then lead to their salvation, salvation which God is going to make available, mind yeah. you, through the literal piercing of, uh, of this, yeah. uh, of, of Christ and the dealing, and, and which will again open up this fountain to cleanse them from sin and impurity yeah. in yeah. Uh, 13 verse 1. Yeah, and, and, and where it says, they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, this is our God. Well, chapter it ends on quite a spectacular note, yes. uh, Stu, in chapter 14. Uh, the connections here with end, time, end times prophecy in the New Testament abound yes. uh, throughout yeah. this yeah. section. So this is, this is a long range, you know. Uh, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against. It sounds like you know, Revel like Revelation nineteen, you know, the Battle mm -hmm. of Armageddon. Uh, then the Lord will go out and fight against these nations as He fights uh, on a day of battle. You know, there again, you know, Revelation chapter nineteen talks about Him standing; His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and mm -hmm. uh, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from west, uh, from east to west. Uh, you know, Jesus leaves from there and says, I'm going to come back in the way, you know, so there's this sense of, you know, he's going to come back to where he left, left. In, a, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, in verse uh, seven of chapter 14 talks about this unique day, day uh, known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. And of course, that connects with Revelation chapter 22. And there will be no, they will not need the light yes. of the sun. Yeah. Because the Lord will be their light yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, in verse 8, on that day, and living water will flow out river. of Jerusalem. Exactly. And there's flows. the river of life that we see in 
Revelation chapter 22, verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. Uh, On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Mm. So this is this universal sovereignty of God and a new heavens and a new earth, ultimately pointing forward uh, to that. And certainly it addresses judgment, speaks about in very Exodus language, the plagues, uh, you know, coming upon the land that will essentially liberate the world. Yes. And bring about this eternal kingdom of God. Yeah. And that is, you know, that's where that's where the book ends on yeah. this. And I think it's important for right. us that in the inevitable kind of turbulence and instability of the world, we've got to remember that our hope isn't in the present age. It's that's in right. the future age. That's right. And uh, when when Christ comes again, if, if we are in him, then our destiny is is sure. Absolutely. And it's really important to be reminded in the details of our life. Uh, God speaks to the details and what's happening now, but we always need to understand that in the light of God's bigger purpose. And boy, is it a big and great purpose. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive.